It had been a messy affair, quite literally. But now at last, things seemed to be going well. After all, who could fault a king for indulging his fantasies? That's what kings do. One night you go out for a stroll, you see a beautiful woman, you want her, you send for her, she comes to you. It's as simple as that. Kings have been doing that sort of thing since the beginning of time. Whatever the king wants, the king gets. That's why they call him the king. And in that day, in that time, it shouldn't have seemed like a big deal. It still happens today. Who among us is ever really surprised to find out that a president or a prime minister has a girlfriend on the side? It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And people hear about it and shrug their shoulders, or they snicker a bit and make jokes, or they don't like it, but they keep it to themselves. Not to justify things, you see, just to observe that. This is the way things are. The king felt like things had finally settled down. There was that problem, though, with the woman's husband. Not an easy thing to get rid of him. He was the loyal soldier type that wouldn't easily be tricked. So the king had him killed in battle. Complicated in a way. But the man ended up looking like a hero in his death. Then the king felt free to take the woman as his wife. So he did. And then came the happy news that the woman was pregnant. All was right with the world. But there were other precincts to be heard from. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Second Samuel 11 verse 29. The king was about to learn the hard way that God is not mocked and be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23. Enter Nathan, the man of God. He told the king a little story about a rich man with many sheep who stole from a poor man the one you sheep his family owned. What shall be done to the rich man who acted so ruthlessly? He should be put to death, the king exclaimed in his anger. Then the man of God delivered his message. You are the man. In a moment, in one heart-stopping instant, the king knew the truth, knew that Nathan was saying, knew what Nathan was saying, knew that he was the rich man who had cheated the poor man. The king knew. Very quickly comes the word of the Lord. I gave you everything you had. I made you king. If that was not enough, I would have given you more. Why did you despise my word? You took this man's wife. You had him murdered. There will be nothing but trouble for you from this day forward. Your family will suffer because of your sin. Then came the worst news. 
your son will die. The king wept and prayed and fasted, but the child died. Then came the time for the king to do the hardest thing that anyone can ever do, to look in the mirror and say, I have sinned. I have sinned. I don't know if I can think of three more difficult words in the English language than those. I have sinned. Whether it's as a child telling my parents I have sinned, uh, whether it is a spouse telling your partner I have sinned, uh, whether it is an employee telling their boss I have sinned, a congregant telling their spiritual leader I have sinned, a pastor telling their congregation, I have sinned, or a king telling his people and telling his God, I have sinned. And yet, through tears and a broken heart, realizing that he had blown it, uh, realizing uh, that he was guilty and responsible for what he'd done, uh, with his heart broken because of his sin, David realizes that to get things right, he needs to first admit how badly uh, he had made things wrong. We're continuing our our series, Misfits in Scripture, uh, where uh, we are looking, discovering how God uses the misfits of Scripture. And and we've defined them over the the last number of weeks. The ordinary, the unexpected, uh, the uh, ones are carrying lots of baggage. Uh, Those who really didn't expect that God would choose them. Uh, And so we've seen these different characters and how God has used these misfits of Scripture to impact the world, to change people, to turn the world upside down. Uh, A few weeks ago, I looked at Rahab. And we saw how this pagan woman from a pagan nation, even Rahab, God was willing to receive, to save, to transform, and to use in a mighty way. But this morning, I want to take a different look at misfits in Scripture. I want to look at King David. And I want us to consider someone who already has a relationship with God who's a follower of God, and yet falls into sin. They're no longer experiencing the joy and the peace and the abundance and the blessing that God intends for his children to experience. But instead, they're walking the journey of faith, carrying a heavy load of sin, and the burden of guilt that goes along with that sin. Uh, we were kidding Al this morning that he's standing upright. And if you were here last week, you saw Al bent over. Uh, and it was quite obvious. And, and Al hurt his back. But there are a lot of followers of God who profess to be children of God. 
who were walking through life like Al was walking last life, bent over, carrying a heavy load of sin and the guilt that goes along with that sin. And what's bending them over, it might be skeletons in a closet. It might be secret sins that are continuing on uh, in their life. Uh, It it may be conflict and, and broken relationships that are trailing behind them. It's the knowledge of their inadequacy and their mistakes and the fact that they've blown it time and time again. And that heavy weight brings a toll. No longer is there spiritual growth. No longer is that experience of joy and peace. No longer is this sense of intimacy and fellowship with God. Uh, God seems so distant. Our prayers bounce off the ceiling back to us. We feel paralyzed. Right? Last week, I'm sure Al felt paralyzed to do a lot of things that he usually could do. And there are a lot of followers of God who are burdened by sin and guilt who feel paralyzed. Who feel that all that is left for them to do is to sit on the sidelines and wait for eternity. I was reading the story by an evangelist and author and and, uh, founder of Dare to Share, uh, a ministry to youth. Uh, And he's telling the story of his son, Jeremy, who was in high school. And and, uh, Greg Steer writes, four years ago, my son, Jeremy, woke me up in the middle of the night. He said, Dad, I need to tell you something. Last school year, I was vaping, and for a few months, I was going out drinking and getting drunk. There were also a few times I bought marijuana and got high. I haven't done any of it for months, but I just had to come clean to you. I was shocked. My son had a solid Christian upbringing. Not perfect, but solid. He had attended a good Christian school from the time he was in kindergarten, and as far as I knew, he was seeking to honor God with his life. But during his freshman year of high school, he had a whole array of secret sins that none of us knew about, and he was keeping those sins hidden away in the basement of our house where his room was. After he woke me up from a dead sleep and dropped the bomb on me, I asked him, Jeremy, why are you telling me this now? He just said, Dad, I can't take it anymore. I'm tired of hiding it. I'm tired of thinking about it. I can't sleep at night, and I keep thinking about it during the day. It is too much to take, Dad. I'm wondering if there's anyone here this morning, anyone that's watching online or watch this sermon, who knows when in the future, and that's how you feel. It's too much to take, Dad. No longer are you experiencing the joy and peace that you once knew in your Christian life. You feel like you blew it. And you know you're responsible. You look at perhaps the wreckage of your life and you realize you're the guilty one. And you despair that perhaps you'll never again experience the forgiveness of sin and the freedom from guilt that you once knew. 
And if we think that that burden of sin and guilt is heavy, imagine what King David must have felt. I mean, if there was ever a poster boy for a person living under the guilt of their sin, he was the perfect candidate. And what do we do with spiritual leaders, especially well-known spiritual leaders who fall into sin? We write them off. We get rid of their videos. We don't read their books. We don't go to YouTube to see what they had to say about a certain topic. You would think that King David would be written out of the books of history. And yet what blows me away is in Acts 13 where Paul is telling us about how God truly felt about King David. And he says these words, That God's true feeling about David was this. I have found David, a man after my own heart. Why? Because he'll do everything I want him to do. You see, David had a heart that was pointed towards God. He, he desired to do God's will, and he would do anything that God asked him to do. That's how scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. But we got to ask the obvious question. How is he still considered to be a man after God's own heart? After such a horrible sin. An affair with Bathsheba. Having Bathsheba's husband put to death. I think to answer that question, you have to look at the character of David's life. And there's no better place to look for that than in the collection of Psalms. Because David lays his life out bare for us all to see. And if you read through the Psalms and you know the stories behind the Psalms, it's very apparent that David doesn't paint a perfect picture of himself because he was far from perfect. He had lots of successes in his life, but he also had Many, many failures. But he was considered to be a man after God's own heart. His heart was pointed towards God. And as you read through the Psalms, you see these characteristics about David. Uh, It could be a sermon series in itself. David had this huge faith in God. Even when his circumstances would have determined otherwise, he had a huge faith in God. He was thankful. He was a truly thankful person, even when situations wouldn't have made him feel really thankful. He had a love for God's law. Even when he broke it, he had a love for God's law. And most pertinent to what we're talking about this morning is that when David was confronted with his sin, as grievous and horrific as it was, David was truly repentant. Linda has read the account uh, that we find in the Old Testament uh, of David and his affair and his murder and his being confronted by Nathan the prophet. 3,000 years ago, David is confronted with his sin and in tears and with a broken heart. Realizing his full responsibility, he writes a poem. And 3,000 years later, 
people are still turning to it to understand and to be instructed on how we can experience forgiveness, on how we can experience the release from the guilt that accompanies sin. And that psalm, as you've probably guessed, many of you, is Psalm 51, and I'm going to get you to turn to that in Psalm 51. We're going to look at the first six verses for most of our morning, and then we'll just touch on the the balance uh, of it near the end. Psalm 51. A question I should have asked before we get to this psalm. As we consider David's burden of sin and guilt, and as we considered this uh, evangelist's son, Jeremy, and, and his load of, uh, of burden and guilt, and, and, and I question whether perhaps that's where you're at this morning, where you feel like you're under uh, a heavy burden of sin uh, and guilt The obvious question that we have to ask is how do we move forward in our Christian journey carrying such a heavy load? And what can we do to find release from such a burden? And there's many Christians who find themselves carrying this heavy burden and they've concluded or they've chosen that guilt is here to stay. That, yeah, we understand that God forgives, and in the end, things are going to turn out okay. But in the meantime, between now and eternity, we're to live with this heavy burden. And we haven't learned and we haven't been able to understand how we can experience God's forgiveness and the removal of guilt now. And let that be our reality. And so with those questions out there, let's turn to Psalm 51 and, and let's read the first six verses. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. I got to say right at the outset of Psalm 51 is that the story of David is not a candy-coated story. As Linda read, David dealt with the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. And it's important, and again, this is a rabbit trail I don't want to go down and could be a sermon in itself. But it's important that we understand the distinction between sin and its penalty and its consequence. If you robbed a bank, that's your sin. The penalty is that you would get thrown in jail. The consequence is that you will live the rest of your life with a criminal record, and there's a pretty good chance you're not going to get a job as a bank teller anytime soon. Sin carries with it a consequence and a penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. The consequence of sin, unconfessed sin, is separation from God. 
So even when God forgives your sin and God has removed the penalty of sin, there still may remain consequences uh, of your sin. John Piper, in an article talking about this, he says that the aim of God when it comes to consequences of forgiven sin is not to settle accounts demanded by retributive justice. The aim of the God-sent consequences of forgiven sin are to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin, to show that God does not take sin lightly, even when he lays aside his punishment, and to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner. And so, David sinned. As we will see, God forgave him of his sin and the penalty of his sin. But David dealt with the consequences of his sin. But even dealing with the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life, when David, and this is what we're going to see this morning, as David dealt honestly with God concerning his sin, he found himself in this glorious place. He found himself in a happy place. If you got your Bible, turn back to Psalm 32. That was the scripture reading for this morning. And uh, we're going to flip back to Psalm 32 a few times this morning. But just look at the beginning of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And the word blessed here can be translated accurately, happy. Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And so David, as we're going to see, deals honestly with God concerning his sin, and he finds himself in this happy place. This place where once again he experiences joy and peace. This place where he's confident that his sins have been forgiven and that the the weight of guilt has been lifted. And that's David's happy place. And as he deals honestly with God about his sin, in verses 1 and 2 back in Psalm 51, David discovers two awesome truths. And the first thing is this. Our confessed sin is no match for God's forgiveness. We can't overwhelm God with our sin. In Psalm 51, David uses three different words for sin to paint a picture, to to cover the full gamut of sin. If we were to list individual sins, they would be covered by how David describes it uh, in verse 2. David says, wash away all my iniquity. Sorry, it's at the end of verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Transgressions means defiant disobedience. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. Iniquity means to distort or to pervert morality. And then cleanse me from my sin. And the word sin here means to miss the mark or to fall short. Defiant disobedience, perverted morality, falling short or missing the mark of God's standards. That covers all of our sins. And what David wants us to know is that we can't overwhelm God with our sin and that his forgiveness is greater than anything that we can ever do. So here's his first discovery. God is not overwhelmed by our sin. 
But here's a problem. Sometimes we're not overwhelmed by our sin either. I I think a problem with churches these days is that we focus so much on the love and the grace and the mercy of God that we, we fail to teach people about the seriousness of the reality of sin. And the reality of sin is this. We all are sinners. All of us. We've got to face the fact. All of us have a sin problem. And the flip side of our sin problem is God's take on sin. God can't tolerate sin. He can't look on sin. He's repulsed by sin. He can't just sweep it under a rug. God has to deal with sin. And sin carries a penalty. The wages of sin is death. And sin carries consequences. For those who have never confessed their sin and accepted Jesus as their Savior and and His work upon the cross on, on their behalf, the consequence of sin is that they are separated eternally from God. But as I mentioned, there's consequences of our sin for those of us who are followers of God, who the penalty of sin has been removed. And the consequences of our sin is that we, we, we lack the joy and peace that we're supposed to experience. Our prayer life is hindered. We, we fail to, to grow spiritually. The, this intimacy and fellowship with God is hindered. And the list goes on and on. But David had a second discovery. So God's not overwhelmed by our sin. And the second discovery is this, that despite the seriousness of our sin, God's forgiveness is complete. And when you compare Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, you find these, this wonderful list of how God responds to our confessed sin. In Psalm 51, blot out my transgressions. The word blot out here literally means to exterminate, to obliterate my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And we get wash me away. We get cleansed. I was, I was here yesterday cleaning the church with Jack. And uh, I can't remember what Jack was doing. And he said it was so satisfying. Well, a cleaning thing. So, Allison, you may find this good for your heart that we found these things satisfying. And, and I said to him, you know what I find satisfying? Vacuuming the floor. Because you could see the stuff and then you vacuum and, and it's gone. And that's David's experience with confessing his sin. That, that God washes it away. That God cleanses him. It, it obliterates and exterminates. There's some stains on this carpet here that I'd love to be able to, to, to exterminate and to obliterate. But, but that's what God's capable of doing with the sin, confessed sin uh, in our life. And then turn to Psalm 32. It said, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And the word forgiven here means lifted. The burden is lifted. And if you go down uh, to verse, uh, where is it? Verse, in verse five, the end of verse five, you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David confesses his sin and what's his discovery? That God lifts the burden of his guilt. So not only is sin, the burden of sin is lifted, but the burden of the guilt that often accompanies sin is lifted as well. Uh, it says his sins are covered, hidden. 
Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. It literally is talking about a canceled debt. Add all those words together. Even David, given the horrific nature of his sin, confesses his sin to God. And those are the words that he describes God's response to his confession. Uh, As one person has written, this is David's experience and this can be our experience as well. God carries away our burden of guilt. It's removed. God covers our shame. There's no reason for future shame. He won't bring it up again. God cancels your debt. There's nothing left to pay. God makes it possible for us to live honestly before him. No wonder David could start Psalm 32 and say, happy, blessed is the one who's confessed their sin to God and experienced the forgiveness of sin and the lifting of the burden of guilt. And my question at this point is, is that not the happy place that we all want to be? To be experiencing the joy and peace and blessing and abundance and sins forgiven and guilt removed. And yet I'm not sure all of us are in that place. Some of us have, have concluded, as I said earlier, that we have to go through the rest of our Christian life here before eternity carrying this heavy load. We're, we're prisoners of our own guilty conscience. That surely God has a limit in how many times he will forgive us or for how much sin he will forgive us, or for what degree of sin he will forgive us. And convinced of that, we carry this heavy burden of sin and shame. And in Psalm 51, David, despite all of our objections, wants to know there is a way to get to that happy place. In the first six verses of Psalm 51, we see it's through Confession. Confessing our sin to God. And, and uh, from these verses, we, we learn a few things about confession. And the first thing is, is that confession begins with an appeal to the mercy and compassion of God. David realized there was no other place he could go. It's not like he could say, God, I am appealing to your justice and to your perfect law. Because he knew he was guilty. And he knew he deserved judgment. If we get pulled over by a policeman for speeding, and especially if we know we are guilty, there's a a number of avenues that we can appeal to. Like we can appeal to a lie. I wasn't speeding, officer. Your radar must be broken. Well, we can ex- appeal to an excuse. I was thinking of that this morning as we were late getting here to the church. If I got pulled over, how embarrassing, especially if it was on armor. I'm preaching this morning. I got to get to church. That's why I was speeding. We can appeal to an excuse. We can appeal to the mercy of the police officer. Uh, we can appeal to uh, our merit, but I'm a great driver. I never speed. It was just this morning. It was, you know, I couldn't see my speedometer, whatever. 
But if we know we're guilty, especially if the policeman says, I caught you on my radar, we're not going to appeal to the Highway and Traffic Act. Yes, officer, I am guilty. I was doing 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, and I appeal to the Highway and Traffic Act. Do what you've got to do. That's a guaranteed judgment. And David realizes that. Fully aware of his guilt and his sin, he appeals to the only thing that's left. And it's a great thing. To the mercy and compassion of God. He cries out to God for undeserved mercy. He cries unto God that God would give him an undeserved judgment. And that's all he needed to appeal to. And the beautiful thing is, that avenue is open for us 3,000 years later. Right? Paul says that it's by grace that we have been saved. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were sinners, he sent Jesus to die. Romans 12 Paul's argument for why it makes total sense to offer your entire selves to God. Why? In view of God's mercies. And if you read the first 11 chapters of Roman, God's mercies, is, it's huge. It includes this wonderful salvation that we have where God forgives us of our sin even though we don't deserve it. In view of God's mercy, because God's merciful and he's compassionate and he's loving, we can appeal to him for forgiveness. And that's important to understand when it comes to confession. But equally important is the second thing that David tells us. Confession involves being honest with God and an end to excuses. If we had the time to recount David's story in detail, it is unbelievable the excuses and the rationalizations and the justifying that uh, David goes through to try to make his situation go away and become all better. Like David truly believed, and, and, and hear the audacity of this. David believed that he can manipulate things enough that he no longer would be under the scrutiny of God. And he believed that if there was enough time passed that the burden of sin and the burden of guilt would possibly even go away. And I sarcastically say, listen to the audacity of that, because those two things that David did, I'm guilty of. I think that I can do hidden sins. I think I can just let a passage of time go by and and God's just going to forget about that sin. And the shame and guilt I feel will just go away. And I think if a Christian counselor could stand here and talk about this very topic, they would tell you time and time again the experience they have with individuals who are living under the toll of living with unconfessed sin. And so we appeal to God for mercy and compassion. We need to be honest and end the excuses And the third, confession involves agreeing with God concerning what he thinks about sin. Now, there's a lot of confusion about confession. I think as Protestants, we we look at times uh, with suspicion at our Catholic friends and their discipline of, of confession, and we don't really understand it. 
Uh, there's a lot of confusion that if you're a Christian and you've already confessed your sin and you've become a follower of Jesus, do you still need to confess? Why do you need to confess your sin? And so there's a lot of confusion. And again, that's going to be a whole sermon, sermon series in itself. But let me just clear up a little bit about confession. Confession, to confess, literally means to speak the same. When we confess our sin, we're speaking the same. We are saying the same thing that God says about sin. And we already talked about what sin is, right? All those things that David the words that David used to describe sin. That's what God thinks about sin. Fall short, missing the mark, defiant disobedience, perversion of morality. That's what God thinks about sin and that we are guilty of sin and we are responsible for our sin. And so we need to speak the same thing that God says about sin. And confession is not just a bunch of words. Right? It's not just going to God and saying, oh yeah, in 1 John 1 verse 9 it says, if I confess my sins, you're going to forgive me. So I confess my sins. Okay, now what was I doing again? It involves understanding the gravity of our sin and having a contrite heart. That's what God's looking for. And on the flip side, it doesn't mean we beg for forgiveness. God has already done everything that's necessary for our forgiveness to be available. That's where 1 John 1 verse 9 comes into play. If we understand the gravity of our sin and with a contrite heart, we confess our sin, saying the same thing that God says about sin, that we agree. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the last thing about confession. Confession isn't just about relationships. It's not just judicial. Confession isn't just about that once and for all decision where we confess our sin and we throw ourselves at the person and the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf and we become a follower of God and we start walking the line of faith. We've crossed the line of faith. We walk the line of faith. That, that's the judicial confession that we read of in Scripture. But there's also a, a family confession, a, a relational confession. And that gets a little bit confusing for us Christians, but in a way I don't understand why it's confusing because in our relationships here on earth, we totally understand it. I understand that if I've sinned against Allison or if I've offended her, it doesn't mean our marriage is over. It doesn't mean she's going to run out the door and I'm never going to see her again. But the intimacy and the closeness and the communication in our relationship is obstructed and it's hindered. And it takes me recognizing that I, I've sinned against Allison. I've wronged her. I've offended her. And coming to Allison and to apologize for her, recognizing what I have done, trying not to do it again, although I often fail, and making things right. And, and that is where confession is such a critical discipline for those of us who are followers of God. Because it involves coming to God, recognizing that my sin does not separate me from God eternally. 
It doesn't mean that I've lost my salvation. That can't be taken away. But when I sin against God, and ultimately it is against God, when I sin, that the intimacy of my fellowship and relationship with God is obstructed. And I need to confess that sin so that our relationship can be fully restored uh, and I can enjoy the, the peace and joy and blessing and abundance that goes with a, a, an unobstructed relationship with God. And, and so that's what David has to tell us about confession. But the question, and, and this, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, the question I think that's really important to ask is how is this happy place even possible? Right, I can think of a lot of scenarios in this world like getting pulled over by a police officer where I can be contrite, be honest, not give any excuses, appeal f- uh, for the mercy uh, and the grace and the compassion of the police officer uh, and yet still find that I have to carry the guilt, that there's a price that still needs to be paid, that there's no provision for the penalty to be covered. I've had that experience. I remember, I think I've shared this story a while ago with, in Rochester, getting pulled over by the police on a long weekend on a Friday afternoon. I'm wanting to get back to Canada, uh, and a police officer pulls me over speeding. I knew I was speeding. I was in a construction zone. The police officer uh, pulls me aside, says, did you realize you're speeding? I said, yes, officer. I said, but do you have any brakes today? And the officer said, no, no brakes. I run out of brakes, I think is what he said. And I got nailed with the full ticket uh, for speeding. And so why does David, of all people, think that he can appeal to God's grace and compassion? And, or why can we appeal to God for his grace and compassion and think that there's any chance in the world that we are going to receive forgiveness and the removal of guilt and experience this joy and peace again? Well, in seven, verse 7 in Psalm 51, we discover that answer. It's because of the power, the cleansing power of the blood. In verse 7, David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. And Daniel talked about hyssop last week. You may not have known you were talking about hyssop, uh, but hyssop was the plant that the Israelites used to put the blood on the doorpost uh, when the angel of death passed them over. Many years later, John the Baptist sees Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And we discover that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. And that forgiveness of sin, that, that the lifting of the burden of guilt, that finding ourselves in a happy place where our sins are forgiven is all made possible because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you and for I. I was reading the story about Jeremy. And many times I get accused of starting a story and then I never finish it by the end of the message. Let me, let me read the ending of Jeremy's story. It's, it's a really good one. Jeremy came clean. I was glad for that. He hadn't been caught. Nobody had turned him in, but the Holy Spirit allowed him to be so convicted by his sins, he confessed them to me. I said, well, Jeremy, there will be consequences for your actions, big ones. And the consequence starts right now. We need to wake up your mom and tell her. 
He knew the consequences for this caliber of disobedience would be huge. He was really nervous that we were going to tell the administrators of his Christian school uh, and that he would be expelled, and his fear was not unfounded. I was really leaning toward telling the Christian school, and Jeremy knew it. Again and again during his dark night of the soul, he begged his mother and I to tell him what the consequences were going to be, but I told him that we needed a few weeks to pray through and think about what to do. We did, but to be honest, I knew that waiting would be a consequence of sorts for him. I wanted to make him sweat it out a bit. So before finally getting to bed in those early morning hours, we set the date for two weeks later. We told him that he would have to wait to hear the consequences until then. Then during that two weeks, there's a discovery of, okay, wait a second, he's buying vape, he's buying drugs, where's this money coming from? They discovered that he had been stealing money from them uh, as well. Uh, The big night of consequences finally came. All through that day, Jeremy was twitchy. We had scheduled our meeting for that night, and as the time was approaching, the twitchier he got. Finally, we sat down at the kitchen table and I handed him a piece of paper. On that piece of paper, I had listed down all the sins he had committed. And there's a bunch of things that he had done. I also listed the potential consequences that ranged from turning him into the Christian school to grounding him for the rest of the year to having him pay back every last dime to taking away his phone for good. The list of infractions and potential consequences was long. The white piece of 8 by 11 paper was chock full of agreed-upon transgressions, infractions, and painful consequences. After we scanned the paper, I asked him, Jeremy, how do you respond to all this? He just said, Dad, Mom, I'm guilty. I deserve whatever you give me. Please just tell me what the consequences are. I said, okay, your mom and I have been praying about this, and the Lord gave us an answer. Here's your consequence. Then I took out a giant marker and wrote one word in big letters across that piece of paper. The word was to test die. What does that word mean, Dad? Jeremy asked. It's the word Jesus said on the cross right before he died. It's the Greek word for it is finished. It means painful. He interrupted me and said, Dad, I know Jesus forgives me, but what are my consequences from you and mom? I said, Jeremy, you're not getting what I'm saying. Your consequence is this. There is no consequence because Jesus took it for you on the cross. He paid the price. He forgave you. So this time we forgive you. We're not going to turn you into the Christian school. We're not going to ground you. We're not even going to make you pay us back the $500. You are completely forgiven. Your debt has been fully paid. Jeremy was stunned. He couldn't believe it. Then I leaned in and I said these words with a sly smile on my face. But unlike Jesus... This is a one-time deal. (laughs) Jeremy was in shock, the good kind of shock. He couldn't believe that he was completely forgiven. I have such a wonderful story of of the forgiveness that we can receive uh, from, from God through Jesus. It doesn't mean that all the consequences of sin are removed, but the penalty of sin Uh, is removed, and there's this opportunity for us to experience the peace and joy, the blessing and the abundant living uh, uh, that is meant for God's children. If you continue through Psalms 51, there's some really cool things that David experienced and discovered about God's forgiveness, and I just want to leave you with the last one, because the question is, how can God use someone like David? David the misfit, a follower of God who fell into sin. How could David be possibly used by God? And I love what David says uh, in verse 13. 
then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David was going to use his experience to cause sinners to come back to God. And for 3,000 years, Psalms 51 has been used by that. And so you may have written yourself off because of your sin and your guilt. Know this, you can be forgiven. You can have your guilt removed. And God will use you. It may not be in the way that you think he's going to use you, but God will use you and he will use me to impact this world for his kingdom. We just have to be honest about our sin.